It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. World Cup 2022, Qatar. After all the anticipation, all the scandals, the incredible sums spent in building from new an entire city in 12 years, well... The shot comes in, oh, it's a goal! And it's a wonderful goal! What a terrific strike it is from Salim Eldazri! And Saudi Arabia are in front! Argentina! It happened. Free kick is uh, taken and just chipped over the top of the back line. Schlotterbeck is struggling here. Oh, what a goal from Asano. And Japan have turned it around. The first Arab World Cup. Football fans, celebrities, dignitaries from all over the world flew to the desert and descended on Doha, a city-state half the size of London, and stayed for a month. As the tournament heads to its Franco-Argentinian climax this Sunday, what was it like actually being there? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, Qatar 2022, like globalisation on an acid trip. My name is Josh Glancy. I'm special correspondent for the Sunday Times, which can mean anything and everything. But in this case means that I was sent to Qatar for a month to cover the World Cup and all the related issues that it threw up into the world. To Qatar for a month? Well, it was either going to be three and a half weeks or four and a half weeks, depending on England's progress. (laughs) And as Harry Kane blew his penalty over the bar, I came home a little earlier. I think, as a Spurs fan, I'm going to remind you that what you actually mean is as uh, Olivier Giroud scored the second goal for France. Anyway, um, Josh, there was one particular match which excited you and a lot of other people. Can you tell me about it? Later on, we start under the lights at Education City for Morocco against Spain. 
can the North African side write some World Cup history? Yeah, so Morocco versus Spain on Tuesday, December 6th, was an extraordinary occasion. And Morocco had progressed quite well during the World Cup. They beat Belgium to win their group. And then they played Spain in the round of 16, the knockout game. And, you know, everyone thought they'd beat Belgium. They were clearly a decent side, but Spain are very good. And no one was really expecting Morocco to get through. It was a very tight game. It was nil-nil. Morocco defended superbly. Just a minute of added time in the first half. Now, we're not used to that. Well, we the, not, well we've, it took 45 minutes to get a corner, you know, which has been strange because Spain have had so much of the ball, but really done relatively very little with it. I'd be amazed. And the noise in the stadium, they, the, the whistling, every time Spain had the ball for the whole game, 30,000 Morocco fans would just whistle. It was deafening. No, no nonsense start from him. The whistles go round the stadium. Spain had the ball. <laughs> Amazing noise, isn't it, Tony? We're going to hear this throughout the 90 minutes, and we may need extra time. One thing that was notable about this tournament was that the European teams really didn't bring a lot of fans. England had quite a few, but Spain, Holland, Denmark, I mean, really talking in the hundreds of fans at each game. So this was a bit like going away to Anfield or somewhere for a European cup game or something it was a total home atmosphere and the whistling is unlike anything i've really heard before something special is happening certainly and i think the atmosphere reflects that unbelievable morocco live to fight another minute or so with penalty kicks looming and they celebrate at the morocco fans that miss like it was a goal Eventually, they forced it to penalties. There may be tears of joy, Moroccan joy to come. Ashraf Hakimi places the ball on the spot. If he scores, Morocco are through. Hakimi strides back the number two. The biggest moment of his sporting life. He takes a big, deep breath. Right foot in. Oh, he has dinked it down the middle. It is Moroccan history. The Atlas Lions roar into the quarterfinals. Hakimi the roar when they won is one of the loudest things I've ever heard. <laughs> um, and I've been to a lot of football games, but every single Morocco fan in that stadium was yelling at the top of their lungs. And it was astonishing. Eldelof thrown into the air by his Moroccan teammate and they cannot quite believe it. For the first time in their history, Morocco are World Cup quarter-finalists and now all of them bow their heads to the ground and thank the heavens for what they have just experienced. Absolutely. And so on Morocco went and then they went on to beat Portugal after that, more convincingly than they beat Spain. And... Morocco started to become the story of the tournament in some ways because they had this incredible support base. People who'd come in from Morocco, North Africans more broadly, Moroccans living in Doha, and the noise they would make, the passion they were expressing was extraordinary. Because it's the first Arab World Cup, there was a surge of kind of pan-Arabic emotion and unity and, and excitement that really started to, to totally transform the atmosphere of the whole tournament. But the other thing that everybody saw was one of the Moroccan players after the full time in the last match dancing with his mother on the pitch, mm. which I don't think I've ever seen before. Yeah, the Moroccan mothers have become a, a real feature of this run 
in the tournament. Yeah, again, you know, it's it's the first Arab World Cup and they're the first Muslim country and first Arab country to reach the semi-finals. And so it's a huge moment for Middle Eastern football. And we're seeing different cultures and different habits expressed on the pitch because of that. So I think the mothers has become a big factor. The Palestine flags in the crowd among the players have become a big factor. The whistling, all these things are reflective of what football means to crowds in the Middle East. Yeah, we're going to have to change from wags to what? Mothers (laughs) and... Mags, mothers and grandmas. Mothers and grandmas. Now, the backdrop of all this, and one of the reasons we have to suppose for the the real force and fervour of the Moroccan fans, is that their team's amazing run was happening at the first Arab World Cup, as you said. Now, you were in Doha for just under four weeks watching it all. What was it like? (laughs) I have a lot of different emotions about Doha and the World Cup. It was thrilling, absorbing and fascinating. I'd never been to the Gulf before, so my eyes were wide open and I learned a lot from particularly in the early days. It was also quite alienating at times. This is a very new city. It's half finished in places. It can be quite hard to get around. Everything felt very shiny. It it looks a bit like Las Vegas. It prays like Mecca and it sounds like Babel. I mean, it is just an extraordinary city, city state. And then you add in all the football that comes with that. This was a unique World Cup because No World Cup has ever been held all in one city before. Normally, the teams are headquartered all over a country, say Russia or America. In this case, we were all in Doha. Then you have all the migrants who live in Doha that are from all over the world, many of them from the subcontinent. And so it felt like globalization on an acid trip. I mean, it was just mesmerizing. You had Holland fans from Nepal Bangladeshi Argentina fans, Kerala and Brazil fans. You had all the different nations, the Senegalese, you have the English, you have the French, you have the Americans and the Canadians, all these different nations, all in one city. So if you went out onto the Corniche, which is the waterfront pathway fan zone at night, I mean, you could see 50 different nations, flags intermingling, songs, language. It was honestly quite overwhelming. I've never seen anything like it. I was rather struck by something that you encountered with Bangladeshi migrant workers who, of course, weren't represented by a Bangladesh team, but nevertheless were very partisan. Yeah, I must admit, I was a little ignorant about this. Obviously, we all know that football is a global game and there are Manchester United fans all over the world, as I've often discovered. And what I didn't realise was that the international teams, particularly Argentina because of Leo Messi, their star player, have been adopted by large swathes of populations, particularly in the subcontinent, where they don't really have their own good international teams. And so huge parts of southern India and of Bangladesh are committed Argentina and Brazil fans. So I'm walking out on the Corniche one night, and and there's this group of about 100 Bangladeshis, and it looked like a religious parade. They were carrying a huge Argentina flag and they were just screaming Lionel Messi's name again and again, yelling it, almost in some form of religious rapture. And they went on and on. It was about two miles down the path and they just went the whole way. And I just walked with them and I said, you know, are you, are you being, you know, asked to be Argentina fans? Because the Qatari, you know, the, the Qataris did pay certain people 
for instance, they paid a bunch of Lebanese football ultras to come and be Qatar supporters at their games to make noise. <laughs> so there was some weird stuff going on with fans. And so I said to the Bangladesh fans, you know, are you, are you real Argentina fans? Like, what, 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 how come you support Argentina? And they explained, yeah, well, we don't have our own team. And Lionel Messi is the greatest player in the world. And so we support Argentina. I just didn't know this was the case. And I felt almost embarrassed. And, th- and their passion, w- they were almost crying with passion about Argentina, a country none of them have ever visited or ever will visit. But yeah, it was incredibly authentic. It was almost the most authentic thing I'd seen in Qatar at that point. And I was really moved by it, actually. And these were migrant workers who were actually living in in Qatar. Yes. So, I mean, the population of Qatar is about 3 million. Only about 12% of that is Qatari. The rest are migrant workers. A huge amount of them come from India and Bangladesh and Nepal. And... They do everything, you know, all the menial work, all the driving and all the serving. And they live in these huge migrant camps, mostly on the edge of Doha, that are, I'd say, fairly dystopian, to be honest. Obviously, it's been documented that some of them died helping build the stadiums where the World Cup was held. Um, And they have no path to citizenship. So they come to Qatar, they earn as much money as they can, or they stay as long as they can bear to, often with their wife and family back home. And then usually they leave. There's this kind of pyramid, and that's how the whole country is, is works, really. Which is kind of like a, a science fiction story in a way. I mean, I, in fact, I think I've read a book in which that kind of social structure exists. But you actually went out to a migrant camp, did you, Josh? Yeah, I did. I, after I saw this messy parade and met all these guys, I felt like I wanted to know more. Where do they live? What's it like? And so I went down to what they call Asian Town, which is probably the most famous migrant camp. It's about half an hour outside the centre of Doha. And um, yes, chatted to a lot of them. Um, there was a lot of people come from uh, West Africa, from Ghana and East Africa, Uganda, to drive buses for the World Cup. Some of them were, you know, medical students looking to pay for their for their studies. Others were just young men who were just unemployed, you know, young men from Nepal who just couldn't find a job. And so th- they live in these barracks. There's can be up to 12 to a room, between four and 12 to a room, sort of bunk beds. You imagine like a very bad youth, very bad youth hostel. I would say that's about the standard. <laughs> There's a huge mosque in the middle of the camp. I was there on a Friday, so you saw thousands of the Pakistani and Bangladeshi workers streaming to mosque. All the Indians and Africans were going off to do a bit of shopping because it was their one day off a week. And they earn, on the whole, it's, it's not great money, but it's enough. They could probably save two or three hundred quid a month. And if they do that for a year, that can be quite helpful back home. But it's a tough life. It's a hard life. I mean, even the ones who were happy to be there saying, you know, it's not, this isn't easy. I'm just happy to be earning some money. Many of them expressed quite a lot of dissatisfaction. They said, well, I haven't been paid on time or this isn't what I was promised or I just, I'm so miserable being away from my family, being with all these strange men I barely know. And it's, you know, I have to work too hard and I'm just exhausted all the time. They're doing 12 hour days, six days a week. Yeah. Did you actually manage when you did meet any Qataris to put to them the conditions of these workers and what they thought about it themselves or whether they expressed any degree of discomfort that there are these other people who make everything happen for them and who don't have the rights they have or are they pretty comfortable with that situation but just uncomfortable when people criticize it if there is discomfort i it wasn't expressed to me i didn't see any moral qualms i mean people might say look we 
they might talk about the labor laws and say, look, we know that they need to get better. We will improve. We are improving. Just give us a bit of time. We hear you on that. But on the broader structure of the society, n- no, I, I, I don't, not, not that it was expressed to me. Okay. Now, th- one of the things that exercised people a lot, particularly over here in, in the States and in Europe, was on the issue of LGBTQ rights. Did you see any incidents while you were there or witness anything that made you think about the way in which this issue was treated in Qatar? Well, I saw some Wales fans have their rainbow hats confiscated at the banner and flag inspection unit, which is a fairly (laughs) dystopian uh, organisation, quite Orwellian. And the thing about Qatar is in your day-to-day experience, particularly as a fan or a privileged member of the media, you're quite protected. They were very hands-off. You could drink, you could misbehave, you could be loutish, but only up to a point. And beyond that point, although it wasn't expressed explicitly, you felt that there was this authoritarian menace, that if you crossed some line, you would be in real trouble fast. And so I didn't see any discrimination or cruelty, really, the odd confiscation, but nothing more. But everyone who was there, myself included, had a sense of being in almost a ring-fenced safe zone, the World Cup zone. But that if one stepped out of that safe zone, and outside of that safe zone is where the migrant workers live, outside of that safe zone is you know what happens when it's not the World Cup and you try and be a gay couple at a hotel in Qatar or anything like that, you had a sense that things would be rather different. So it was a sanitised experience. Although I should emphasise that you know, some of the expectations people had of Qatar were just wrong. I mean, you can drink there. You just have to go to pubs, which are in the hotels. You can hold hands there. Uh, you can wear shorts there. You know, this isn't quite the, I don't know what to say, Islamo-fascist theocracy that some people in the media painted it as. But it is obviously a place with very difficult laws for gay people, women and others. So it's not Kandahar under the Taliban? No, it's not exactly. That's a, That's a good way of putting it. However, there were ideas of restrictions, and as you said, it was a, a slightly sanitised experience. Not, from from what people were saying, from what you were writing, it looked as if that had both problems and actually some unexpected benefits. Yes. I had a meeting with a guy called Stephen Graham, who's the head of the British police delegation that goes out to every World Cup and tries to help the local police deal with, with the England fans, basically. Uh, and Wales fans in this case. And I said, how's your tournament been? And he said, it's been like a dream. He said, if every tournament was like this, I'd be out of a job. He said, it's it's, it's like football as though it was in a Disney movie because there was, <laughs> no, there was no cocaine available. There was alcohol available, but only in quite constricted areas. And the England fans behaved themselves. I mean, they were rowdy at times. They were singing, they were boozing in the pubs, but they behaved themselves. And you visited the one English pub. I, well, I shudder just to think about it. But anyway, what were you hearing from the people there about it? So I'm walking into the Red Lion, which is a mecca for, well, England fans and others at the World Cup. It's about the closest you get to a real pub here. Uh, yeah, so the unofficial England pub for the tournament was the, the Red Lion, Al-Mansour. And it was, you know, it was weird because you, you walk into a, very typical Cattery Hotel, you go up to the 10th floor and suddenly you're in, you could be in 
you know, Birmingham or Norwich or something, and it's just a classic English pub. Very loud, very raucous. And people were having a great time. And they kept saying the same thing, which is, oh, you know, the media told us it was going to be this hellhole and actually we're having a jolly good time and the weather's lovely and uh, we're boozing when we want to. And the rest of the time, we've got a bit more energy and time on our hands, so we're doing other things. So the England fans who were there felt very positive and they felt they'd been missold on Qatar in advance. So what happened to the age-old customs of, you know, urinating in the street and throwing plastic chairs at other people? Yeah, well, I mean, it was... I didn't see a single person urinating in the street the whole tournament. Not a single England fan, but not anyone. I can't express to you enough how unprecedented that is at a football <laughs> tournament. Coming up, the tournament was unlike anything we've seen before in many ways. But for the host nation, after scandals, condemnations and $200 billion... Was it worth it? That's after a quick message from a colleague. I'm Alice Thompson, a columnist and interviewer at The Times. It's the best job in the world. I get to interview the most extraordinary people, from Bill Gates to James Dyson, and the last interview with the incredible Deborah James. I also get to comment on the most fascinating news stories, travel to the most bizarre places, and inform, analyse, infuriate and entertain. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Let's move on, Josh, and try to evaluate 
whether or not this World Cup was a success in the terms that the hosts wanted it to be. Now, uh, you said in one of your pieces that there are two World Cups happening in Qatar, a fan tournament, the one you've been describing, and another one playing out in ritzy restaurants. I get the fan bit. What's the ritzy restaurant bit? Well, so after about four or five days there, an old friend of mine from Washington invited me to a dinner at a restaurant called Lamar, which is one of Doha's best restaurants. It's on the seafront. It's a Peruvian restaurant. And it was a party being thrown by the Qatari ambassador to Washington. And at the party were a group of US members of Congress, prominent ones, people I'd recognized or met before. And they were basically there on a jolly. It was an educational trip. They'd been to the uh, USA-Wales game. And they were smoking cigars and chatting politics, really. And it suddenly, I suddenly realized that a lot of the function of this World Cup for Qatar was this kind of the behind the scenes political relevance of the tournament. Well, good afternoon, everyone. And uh, Mohammed, thank you. Uh, thank you for your uh, wonderful hospitality. Thank you for the very good. Just that week at the same USA-Wales game, Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, had been there. He'd come to visit and he'd given a very positive speech about Qatar. Now, a massive amount of work goes into hosting an event like this. Uh, we know that without workers, including many migrant workers, this World Cup simply would not have been possible. Qatar's made meaningful strides in recent years to improve its labor laws, to expand worker rights. The United States has been and will continue to be a consistent partner in those efforts. Very slight rap on the knuckles on the human rights front and some really warm words about Qatar and its relationship with the USA, which has become pretty close in the last couple of years in particular. Uh, so we meet at what is a high point of the five-decade-long diplomatic relationship between our countries uh, on every issue that matters to our nations. Our collaboration, I think it's fair to say, is deeper and our people are the better off for it. Um, this kind of opened my eyes to the geopolitics of the tournament. You had Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, wearing a Qatar scarf at the opening game. Well, this is a country that until last year was blockading Qatar and relations have been incredibly tense between the two. You had the King of Spain there. You had our Foreign Secretary, James Cleverly, came to the opening ceremony. So although there had been all this criticism poured on Qatar's head, behind the scenes, the political effect of the tournament could be felt. Uh, of course, C Qatar spent a lot of money on this, but they have a lot of money. So it's not necessarily a huge problem for them. Did you get any sense of how they balanced out the problem, the criticism they got as a result of having the World Cup? Because otherwise people just wouldn't have paid them the attention. Uh, and the benefits they got from holding the World Cup and having all these people come in and say, mm, you've done it rather well. It's a really interesting question. I don't know that they'll really have an answer to that for five or 10 years. I think they were surprised by the scale of the criticism and really upset by it because they felt it was disproportionate. They knew they were going to get some stick, but they looked at how we approached Russia in 2018. Putin's Russia, a Russia that had already invaded and occupied parts of Ukraine, and there was very little criticism. You can go back. There was grumbling, but there really wasn't anything like the criticism we saw towards Qatar. So they just didn't understand the difference. And they felt that some of that was due to racism or Islamophobia, 
So they were surprised by the criticism or the scale of it. And they did, I mean, even by their own wealthy standards, they spent a lot of money. I mean, estimated $200 billion. The way that the Qatari diplomats will express it to you is, we are a tiny, tiny country. We are surrounded by giants. They share a gas field with Iran. Their neighbours are Saudi Arabia. And we have a lot of money, a lot of natural resources, and we need to protect ourselves. And the World Cup was part of this grand strategy. It includes setting up Al Jazeera, the Middle East main media outlet. It includes being sports, the sky sports of the Middle East. They want to become what they describe as the Singapore of the Middle East. Small, wealthy, prosperous, with you know good relationships with the world that protects them. And so the World Cup was really the engine of this. I'm struck, really, both in the smaller sense and in the bigger sense, by how much contrast it gives you between different sorts of people and particularly wealth contrast. And I I gather, Josh, you went to really one of the most exotic hospitality areas that you've ever been to. Yes, I did. I, I was curious to see what it would be like behind the velvet rope. And in Qatar, they have there are five different executive lounges at the airport. Everything's segregated by levels. So there's VIP. Five? Yeah. Well, there's, five different ones? Yeah, because there's VIPs, there's foreign VIPs, there's what they call VVIPs, which is people who are connected to the royal family. So everything has to be in layers of, of privilege and status. Um, I wanted to get as high up the, the privilege ladder as I could and see what it was like up there. So for the Saudi Arabia-Argentina game, I got match hospitality to take me to their Pearl Lounge at the Lucille Stadium, which would normally be $5,000 or more uh, a ticket. And it was a heck of a game to choose because Saudi Arabia beat Argentina. And in the Pearl Lounge was you know these sort of Saudi tycoons and sheikhs with all their families eating Jason Atherton cooked food, lobster claws and Wagyu steaks and all this high status food. And there was Tattinger champagne being popped um even though all the humps in the crowd weren't even allowed to buy a beer outside the stadium to cool their thirst it was quite a weird contrast and when saudi actually scored their equalizer against argentina which really no one was expecting it was just after half time we were in the lounge all tucking into seconds at the seafood bar and opening a new bottle of champagne there was a sudden rush to get back outside to see the aftermath of the goal um you know for a lot of these people it's not really about the football it's about the experience of being in the 0.01%, about that kind of gold-flecked existence that they live. That was on display all across the tournament. Now, it sounds a bit like something out of the Hunger Games, frankly. Well, yes. At its worst, it can feel a bit like that. There are some really dystopian elements to Qatar. One thing I would say is, though, it, it does at times hold up a bit of an ugly mirror to our own society, which is also radically unequal, which does also depend on cheap migrant labour. I'm not being totally relativist here. I think there's a lot of things we do a lot better than they do. But, you know, at times it felt like some of our own flaws, but amplified. Some of the most egregious aspects of our own society just amped up to another level, which is where they've taken it. If you look at them and say, well, why have you chosen to do all these things? And actually, a lot of them are very Western tendencies. I mean, the consumerism there is our consumerism, really taken up to another level. If you go into the Place Vendôme in Lucille, it is all European brands. It's Burberry, it's Fendi, it's Gucci, and it's just this palace of Western consumerism that they've just imported wholesale from us. 
So you can't just go there and think, God, they're awful. or God, this is awful. If there are things you hate about it, you have to look at how they connect back home, really. Well, and that leads me to my final question, since you've raised the dystopia of the world as run by Kim Kardashian. Um, Do you think this is an unreal world or the new real world? I mean, the last programme you and I did together, you were talking about going to the Puerto Rico crypto millionaires and their strange kind of gated communities. Since then, we've had the downfall of the Bankman Freed Empire with its gated community in Bahamas. And the, the thing that you wonder is, can this kind of way of being be sustained? Or is it a kind of a strange pimple on our history? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think this is underpinned by a very real resource that the world needs more than ever. Liquefied natural gas is, you know, the, the, it's the energy source of the moment and they've got tons of it. So it is underpinned by something very real. But I think that anxiety actually lies at the heart of a lot of what we see in Doha. Is this real? Can we make it last? Can we build something sustainable here? And they're, part of the reason they're racing so fast and part of the reason they had to have this World Cup is because they're desperate to establish their credentials to the world to, to to convince everyone this is a real credible place that's going to do real credible things and what could be more credible than hosting the world cup um and pulling it off so you know i think they're trying to prove it to themselves as well as to the rest of the world we are bedouin camel herders who hit the jackpot won the lottery and we're gonna build a society that's gonna matter in a hundred years time. And that is their goal. Whether they pull it off or not, I don't know, but, but they're certainly pretty strategic about getting there. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, the podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, special correspondent for The Sunday Times, Josh Glancy. You can find all of Josh's coverage of the World Cup and much beyond at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. You can also check out our podcast from just before the World Cup opened. It's called World Cup, Our Football Writers' Five Stages of Grief. This episode was produced by Taryn Siegel, the executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound designs by David Crackles. If you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. 